Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Now, I read a very interesting book this week. It was called The Lucian Birth Narratives. I had this big subtitle. Anyway, the, a big, big subtitle about the understanding the themes of um, Luke's uh, birth narratives. It's a very interesting title. But he asks this question, he says, why does Luke begin with John? That's a good question. Now, as the author, Luke controls the narrative. If you start a story, you are, you are, if you're the author of a story, you control how it begins, yes? And so Luke here has deliberately chosen to start with John. Why John? Well, if you unpack the book, at the very beginning of Luke, we get four little verses. And we actually find out Luke has written to this guy, Theophilus. Now, that presents, you know, a challenge for us because Luke is assuming something about Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name. It means God's friend or friend of God, something like that. And this guy Theophilus, we don't really know who he is, but there's this assumption that he knows a lot about Jesus and he wants to know the truth of what's actually going on. And so Luke here in writing to Theophilus, he's making this assumption that he knows his Old Testament. And this is a bit of a problem for us, is that if I ask you a question, and the question is, what Old Testament images did you hear in that passage? What would you say? Think of what Mari just read out to us. Story about Zechariah. Having an angel appear to him, barren, being a barren couple who are older, being silent as a punishment for not being obedient. Would you say that points back to the Old Testament? Could you find that? Can you guys see any themes? What stories does that point to? Someone shout out. That's why I bought lollies. Uh, what sugar? Pardon? Sarah. Who said that? There we go. Sarah. Whoa, there we go. Yes, Sarah's one. And anything else? Who's another? It's all right. There was a hard question. It was a loaded question because this is part of the problem with the Gospels is that the authors are assuming is that you have lots of knowledge. Luke is writing to this guy Theophilus and Luke is assuming that Theophilus knows his Old Testament inside out, back to front. And the letter was written to this guy, Theophilus. We are just, I guess, intruders on this narrative in a way. But so today we're actually going to have, a, we're going to go on a journey, a journey through the Old Testament. So we're going to unpack this text piece by piece. I'm going to put my Bible teaching hat on. And at the end, we're going to come to some practical applications for this. So let's start off with reading the text again. In the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. 
Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, see here what I've got underlined in the time of Kerid, king of Judah. If you read a book like Samuel or Kings or Prophets, I always start with identifying where there's a king, what time it happened in. And what Luke is doing here is connecting this bridge, this bridge between the Old Testament and the New. Very, very deliberate. And we've got this reference here to this priest, Zechariah who belonged to this priestly division of Abijah. Abijah was just one of the many, many descendants of Aaron. He had 24 descendants, and this was actually one of the weakest priestly lines. Wasn't that special? Wasn't that important? And he has a wife, Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. So these are priests, priestly line. And the job of a priest is to connect the people to God. But... There's a bit of a problem. We're told that they're righteous in the sight of God. They observe all the Lord's commands, but they were childless. And Elizabeth is not able to conceive. Kate's setting up a pattern. Michelle has already called out that pattern. Who's a woman in the Old Testament that was barren? Sarah. There's no one. Hannah. Rachel. Um, Samson's mother. We don't know her name. There's this pattern here of someone who is barren, a woman who is barren, having a child who will do something great for God. Now, as, as the reader, we are meant to think of the Old Testament and go, okay, now I've read this before. I've heard this pattern before. I know that if there is someone who is righteous that cannot have children, God is going to do something great, something powerful. And this is what Luke is doing. He's showing how God uses history kind of repeat itself that the the stories of old gonna lead to something fruitful in the future so that's what we're assuming and then once Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense and when the time for the burning of incense came all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Now, I don't know about you. I don't really find that stuff terribly interesting. So here's a picture. Picture tells a thousand words, as they say. So this is where uh, Zachariah would have been. He's got his incense, burning it there in the temple. And all the people are here waiting outside. And there you go. There's a little, little picture there. Of Zechariah. There is burning incense, and this is what the priests had to do in the morning and in the evening before sacrifice. And this was considered to be a really, really honored position. In fact, it was done by lots randomly. And I mentioned before Abijah, which is the priestly line Zechariah is part of, it was like not that important. Kind of the low of the low, they didn't weren't that highly regarded. But to actually be called, to actually have the lots fall upon you, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This was the only time Zachariah would have been able to do this. And the assumption was he's going to go in, throw in some incense, then leave, and then come out and say to the people, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you. And then he would go home. 
But then something dramatic happens. And we notice. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, there's a pattern in Scripture too where an angel appears and announces a birth. And it's similar here. There would always be this sort of pattern of people who see the angel, they freak out, they're absolutely terrified. The angel tells them, hey, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And they give him this message with a sign or some sort of reassurance. And then this child is born. And that's the exact same pattern that is happening here. Now, what is really interesting is we're told here that your life, Elizabeth, will bear your son and you are to call him John. Now, traditionally, fathers name their, their kids. They name their sons. And what the angel here is saying, he's saying, hey, God has actually named this child. The name Johanna, which is the Hebrew form of John, means like God is gracious. Something like that, God's grace, God is gracious. And that's tied in with part of what John will do. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. And he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, with Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's barren. You know, it just seems like this curse upon them. But with, but with um, the call to have Isaac, there's this blessing upon all the Israelites. In fact, Abraham has told us that you'll be the father of many nations. All the nations in the world will be blessed because of you. This is another thing that Luke is tapping into. This, this barren couple, which seems like they have this disgrace upon them. What's going to happen? They're going to have a son. They prayed for a son, but God's going to do something one better. He's going to give them a child who's going to be a blessing upon all the Israelites. It is. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord. And it says here, something strange, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What the angel is doing there, he's riffing off a couple of scriptures, a couple of famous scriptures. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi chapter 4, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. This idea is that before God's return, Elijah the prophet will come. Now, what did Elijah do? I get some more sugar here. What was Elijah? What did he do? Pardon? Prophet. What was he most famous for? Yeah, yeah, he killed the 400 prophets of Baal. But there was someone who came 
after Elijah wasn't there. What was his name? Elisha, yeah. So Elijah had this tremendous power, didn't he? He actually called down, oh, you should say, stopped the rain for three years. He caused a drought. But then after he was taken up to heaven, Elisha is given double the portion of his power. So you kind of see what Luke is doing. I ask that question, why does he start with John? So if you've got Elijah here who's got all this power, and now we're being told John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, that implies there must be another whom after him? Another Elisha. And if Elisha has twice the power of Elijah, what's Jesus going to be? Yeah, more powerful than John. He's starting to see what the patterns are happening. This is why Luke begins with John. He's setting up this theme in Scripture. So we've got this barren couple, like Abraham and Sarah, like all the other mums in Israel who were barren. They're going to have a son that will be a blessing. And this son here, he will do something amazing. But there's going to be a greater son, one who will come afterwards. And there's another pattern in the Old Testament, which is the younger son that's elevated over the older. That's all happening here. This is what Luke is implying for us as the reader. We're meant to think, oh my goodness, God is going to do something great, something powerful. And the fact that he will never have wine or other fermented drink, oh, there's two other people that happened to. Prophet Samuel and Samson. Yeah, and how did Samson go down? Actually, who called that out? Samson. There we go. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And so all these images are just riffing off here and saying, hey, John is bringing in something that we've seen in the past, but he's going to do something new, something spectacular. And then, so that's, that's, you know, you'd think, oh, yeah, that's pretty exciting. But Zechariah then asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Very similar question to what Abraham asked God. He was told, how's this going to happen? And so, like Abraham, Zechariah kind of asked a question, but here, Gabriel says something, or puts a big punishment upon him. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. Seems like a very, very harsh punishment. But he asks for a sign. He's like, how can this be? And so Gabriel's like, here's a sign for you. Here's a sign of how it's going to happen. You're going to be silent. That's the sign. And what's interesting here, this, the angel that's been unidentified so far identifies himself as Gabriel. Only two angels we know of in the Old Testament, Gabriel and Michael. Michael is a warrior who fights. Gabriel is a messenger. And Gabriel's other appearance is in the book of Daniel. And Gabriel appears to Daniel in really similar circumstances to Zechariah at the time of the evening sacrifice. And Daniel and Zechariah have the same reaction. They're both fearful. They're both scared. They're both told to not be afraid. 
And Gabriel tells Daniel, it's a very complicated vision, but a vision of 70 weeks. You may have come across that. And there's all these different interpretations of how it would be. But basically, the 70 weeks is God's roadmap for how the end will come. And now the, the angel, the messenger that tells Daniel how the end will come, now comes again to, Zach to Zachariah to tell him he's going to have a son. I.e., it's implying that God, that, that 70 weeks that God had first announced, it's beginning. It's happening again. The end of days is here. There is something exciting. God's plan is moving. There is a purpose. It's heading towards the end. And then, and then the narrative ends off. The people are waiting for Zechariah and wondering, where is he? And he comes out and he can't speak to him. He can't give that priestly blessing. And somehow they figure, oh, he's had some vision. He's had some vision in the temple. And then his time of service is ended. He returns home. Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and for five months she remains hidden. And she says here, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he's shown his favor and taken my disgrace among the people. So that is a little journey unpacking the text. If you want to hear more, listen to banter this week. We'll go even more in depth. But something practical, because it's easy to read biblical narratives and go, Okay, that's a story. You can tell that to a child. You can summarize that very briefly, can't you? Biblical narratives, they're simple, but not simplistic. Big difference. There is so much theology packed into that, so much richness. So how do you draw from that something practical? How do you guys, instead of just having head knowledge full of some random Old Testament facts or facts about the text, what's something in the heart in that? Look at it this way. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they don't know God's plan in their life. To be a barren couple in that world was deeply, deeply shameful. Us, we, we probably just don't get the depth of how shameful that was. And there would be this assumption, which is why Luke identifies that they're actually righteous. There'd be the assumption that they're under God's curse, that these guys have done something wrong to deserve this barrenness. And so for us as the reader, we can see their lives... And go, hey, like, you're barren for a reason. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And so for us today, we, we're not living in the time before Jesus' birth. We're living after that. But for us, it can perhaps seem like us too, is where is God in the midst of things? What's he doing with my life? I am experiencing some sort of metaphorical barrenness. What is God going to do with that? And what Luke is doing for us, he is reminding us to look back to history. Look back in history. Look what God has done in the past. That is a template for what he's going to do in the future and for your life. And so for us, if, if you're struggling with what God is doing with you, if you feel like you have no direction, no plan, no purpose, just look back. Okay, look what God has done in the past. He's going to do something great in the future. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they were not privy to this knowledge, and neither are we. But friends, we are privy to this knowledge, is that God sent his son into this world to save us. And so, well, often in the Bible, God is what 
commentators say, he is present but hidden. So if you read an Old Testament narrative, God's often not the main character. But we're just to see him is there, his hair, he's hidden, sort of off stage, but his fingers are working, tapping into different events. And John, in a way, he's like a sign reminding us, God is still working. Zechariah, he, he's so shocked at seeing Gabriel because the assumption is he'd never, ever see something like that. You go into that temple space, you chuck in a bit of incense, and you step out. He would never imagine in wildest dreams that Gabriel would come and visit him. So Zechariah has a dramatic moment. The birth of his son is that reminder of God's fingertips just working behind the scenes. And that's for us, friends. We need to be reminded of that too, is that God just leaves little hints little signs, sometimes very dramatic, sometimes not so dramatic, but he is working. And like Luke, writing to Theophilus, saying, Theophilus, my friend, just keep looking back to see the future. Look back to the Old Testament, look back to the promises that God has given, see those themes, see those patterns, see what God is doing, he's going to do something great in your life. I love this quote here from Daryl Bock. He says, when we, when we wait patiently on the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagined possible. Zachariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. What they got was a prophet. Isn't that cool? That's all they wanted. They just wanted a son. We just want our disgrace removed. Said they got something greater. So who knows what God has in store for you. Who knows what God's plans and purposes are for your life? I think to often think of this, our struggles may have a deeper meaning. Who knows what that deeper meaning is? And as we come to this Christmas season and reflect upon the hope, and we say it's about Christmas, Jesus is the hope, Jesus is the reason for the season. We live in a world that desperately needs hope, that desperately needs to hear the light of Jesus Christ. Let's just reflect back on those scriptures to see what God has done then and what God will do for us in the future. Let me pray for us. Our Lord God, I just want to give you thanks for your word. It's very deep and very rich. There's so much that we could explore in there. But Father, I pray that ultimately, Lord, we can just see that practical truths, Lord, that you are the God that's hidden and working and active. And that, Lord, that we can look back on those scriptures at times in our life where we just feel like you're not working, you're not doing the things that we want. So, Father, I pray that we can just take hope from what you did for Zachariah and Elizabeth, that hope of the birth of John, and look forward to that day where ultimately, Lord, we just see your promises fulfilled completely and utterly. And so, Lord, I just pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Journal. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you 
as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.